As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. Today's Thursday, September 15th. I'm Robert Mays. Joining me today, the Athletic's own Bo Wolf. Bo, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing very well. We really appreciate you joining us for the first edition of our newly revamped Thursday show. You and I both had podcast partners stolen away from us, so we're both kind of figuring mm. out with new, what new look shows happen to be this season. So this thir- this year on Thursdays, we're going to do a similar sort of show to what we did last year with Lindsay, just kind of talking through some of the headlines, some of the bigger storylines throughout the league, but we're going to have a rotating group of guests and i am very happy to have you be the first person sitting in that chair well thank you you've still got nate i've still got zach so you know we're better off that's what we got to keep telling ourselves right <laughs> um that that's the story i'll tell myself i'll feel a little bit better that way we're gonna start all of these shows on thursday just running through some of the headlines a lot of news creeps up throughout the week that we can't necessarily hit on the Monday night show or on the Sunday night show or on the Wednesday show. So, so let's start with the Dak Prescott injury. Uh, news came out earlier today, or I think yesterday, that he is not going on injured reserve, which means he could miss fewer than four games. Seems like potentially some wishful thinking on the part of the Cowboys. Again, trying to tell themselves a story about where Dak Prescott is right now. But I think semi-good news that this might not be the season torpedoing injury that it might have seemed like at first glance. Yeah, I mean, it's weird, right? Um, you, you get that, like, if there's some kind of 
like Rhino bone marrow or something that Jerry Jones can access that's going to help heal Dak Prescott sooner. He will make sure that he can find it. Um, but it, it's a little bit weird. It's, it also sounds like Jaron Curse's injury is not as bad as they originally thought. So maybe it's just all good news or maybe, you know, Jerry has just deep enough pockets to fix people's uh, body parts like that. But yeah, I think, I think when the, the injury initially happened, you're thinking, okay, the Cowboys season's over. Like Dane Brugler's tweeting about how Cowboys fans are already asking him about, uh, draft prospects <laughs> for next year. If he's only going to be out, even if it is only four or five games, maybe there's still a chance. So their next five games, Bengals, which is a pretty big game, uh, with Cooper Rush, I think that's going to be tough sliding with him. They get the Giants, Washington. After that, Rams and Eagles. So IR would mean at least four games, which would include that Rams game. If they think he can be back in four weeks and be back for the Rams and potentially the Eagles, that could be huge. Because if he's out any longer than that and they keep skidding and they end up losing that game to the Eagles, the season gets away from them pretty quickly. Yeah, I would say so. And I mean, like Cooper Rush was, I thought, like not quite as bad as I was expecting when he came in Sunday night. Now, I guess the conditions of the game were pretty uh, beneficial to him. Like the, the Bucks did not care at that not point. Not going to read a ton into that. Yeah. We've having, seen having, backup quarterbacks be well, okay. I, listen, I have been through the Benny DiNucci era, so I, I, I have had lower expectations. But yeah, I mean, I think the Cowboys told you what they thought of Cooper Rush when they released him during roster cutdowns and then, and then re-signed him, right? Uh, the fact that they just rolled into this season with that, I mean, I thought they were a Jimmy G team potentially if they were looking for a higher end backup, a breaking case of emergency type guy if he were to be released for this exact sort of situation because now they're staring down this Cooper Rush reality totally. for the next month. And the Eagles are pretty good. I, I don't know if you know this as somebody who covers that team every single day, but I think the Eagles have a chance to be pretty good. Yeah, and I think I think uh, they have a chance now to potentially run away with the division if, if things get, get really south. Can I pitch you my uh, my crazy three-way trade idea that I uh, that I had in the power rankings after uh, I took you certainly can Aaron Rodgers ayahuasca uh let's let's say that like the the Ravens have come to a decision that Lamar the, the contract's not going to happen and uh the Niners have come to the idea that okay you know what it's not going so well with Trey Lance how about Trey Lance to the Ravens so he can just run the same offense Lamar Jackson to the Cowboys with a handshake deal that they're going to let him go to the open market next year. This would be if Dak Prescott's out for the year. And then like a bunch of picks and, I don't know, a running back to the to the Niners. Letting you do the power rankings was a mistake. <laughs> well, the ayahuasca was, was a mistake too. <laughs> All right, next one here. And I guess in semi-good injury news, TJ Watt only expected to miss about six weeks with that pec injury. When it happened and he pointed to his arm immediately, my first thought was that's it. I mean, he tore a pack. He's out for the season. What does that mean for the Steelers? But sounds like he's only going to miss six weeks. Steelers traded for Malik Reed right before the season started to give themselves a little bit more edge depth. That now becomes very prescient because he's going to step into a starting role most likely. Alex Highsmith looked like an all-pro pass rusher on Sunday. And six pressures. I mean, he was dominating Jonah Williams for stretches of that game. So it seems like they might be able to survive. Obviously, when you lose arguably the most impactful defensive player in the league, it's a huge deal. But the fact that this is only six weeks and not season ending, there's a chance that their defense hangs on for dear life until he gets back. Well, and this is a, a team building thing that like you just talked about, like they planned for this possibility and the Cowboys didn't, right? Like yeah. the Cowboys didn't have a good backup plan. This, it's not like there is a great backup plan for TJ Watt, but at least the Steelers thought this through. Yeah, I mean, obviously he really tilts what the defense is when he's in there. That's the nature of being the defensive player of the year, but... 
It seems like they might be able to get by just enough. Their defense is going to need to carry them. We're going to talk about the Steelers' defense or offense a little bit on tomorrow's show. Uh, they are not in a good place. So this defense needs to be very, very good. And doing that without T.J. Watt, degree of difficulty gets risen just a little bit. Well, the other thing that occurred to me is is like maybe T.J. Watt, if he's out for six weeks and the defense can still be you know close to the same level, maybe that maybe that gives the shine on on Minka Fitzpatrick that he deserves. I mean, he was a star in that that week one game. Maybe he gets a little bit of, of defensive player of the year love. Couple more injuries here. Keenan Allen is out on Thursday. Sounds like with that hamstring injury, it doesn't sound like they're going to rush him back. I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, Josh Palmer is a guy that we've seen in limited action be pretty good. Obviously, they still have Mike Williams. Donald Parham is also a little bit dinged up, so they're losing pass catching options. And the fact that they have to keep pace with the Chiefs a little bit later tonight probably not a good thing. But hopefully, Keenan Allen is back sooner rather than later. Jamal Adams sounds like he is out for the year with a knee injury. Pretty brutal blow for the Seahawks. And then Elijah Mitchell went on IR. He's going to be out for at least a month with a knee injury. It's always not fun when we get to week one and you realize that this is how right. football works and that all of these guys are going to be gone for stretches of time. My, my Elijah Mitchell reaction was uh, like good for Debo for standing firm on his contract demands because like now they're just going to make him a running back again, right? Like So at least he made sure that, that he got what he deserved. All right. Each week on this show, we're going to roll out some notable quotes from the week in the NFL. We're calling this segment Read Between the Lines. Kind of digging a little bit, one layer under the surface of, of what these quotes might seem like. Bauer, roll our first one here. Yeah, I, I, that's not validation to me. That's, that's why I just didn't take that word. There. All right. you're, you're right about everything you just said. What is the word? Uh, well, it's, it, that didn't. I didn't need the validation. I just mm-hmm. wanted it. I just wanted to win. You know, I wanted to win for every, all of the reasons that, that, that come along with this one. Uh, maybe as much as anything is representing the guys that have played before. It meant a lot to those guys. And uh, um, I was so thrilled to, to be able to hug those guys up and see them and look them in the eye. And, Why did and, it mean and, so and much to them? Yeah, you figure that out. They, they, um, but it was really meaningful, and they really wanted it. And uh, I knew we were playing for a lot more than just the regular stuff. That is Seattle Seahawks coach Pete Carroll uh, earlier this week on Seattle 7:10 a.m. with Mike Salk and Brock Heward talking about what this game meant to some former Seahawks that happened to be in attendance in their win over the Broncos on Monday. The shit that Pete Carroll has said over the past week is absolutely wild. I knew that this game was big on that level, whether it meant a lot to Russell Wilson or it meant a lot to Pete Carroll in this organization. But the fact that every single guy who played for the Seahawks between like 2012 and 2020 took great delight in Russell Wilson losing that game. I don't think I was ready for it to rise to this level. They all had their they all had their tweets like pre-planned what they were going to have like the Doug Baldwin one I saw. I you know what it's it's kind of refreshing though, right? Like it's awesome. you don't have to pretend that there's no ill will here like, you know, Doug Peterson and Carson Wentz. It's not quite as acrimonious of a of a of a split, but like those guys are going up against each other and it's like, "Okay, yeah, it's going to be nice. We're going to not really talk about our own past." This is great. Like be honest, lean into it. I'm like, do you think that if the Seahawks like lose the rest of their games, they go one and 16. Pete Carroll would still take that. If you asked him honestly, probably not validation. So. This isn't validation for Pete. <laughs> it's I, so good. I, I really just wasn't ready for it to be this level of enmity. I, I don't know why. I, I mean, I should have probably should have like the story that Seth Wickersham wrote way back when, you know, Greg Bishop has written about this subject a couple different times and just what, especially those guys on the defense, how they looked at Russell Wilson and KJ Wright came out this morning 
and on his radio show in Seattle was talking about how early on during Russell Wilson's tenure, he just didn't feel like there was the same level of accountability for Russ that there was for guys on the defense. And this push in the pole when you have a lot of success is always fascinating. And if I'm one of those guys on those Legion of Boom defenses, and I look at what Russell Wilson was in that equation and what that defense was and how it drove their success, I can understand being a little bit pissed off that this guy takes up so much so much oxygen and so much space within the conversation. Yeah, totally. And it's, you know, the, these people dynamics of, of things in the locker room are something that it's hard to uh, account for from the outside. So, so it's nice for it to be so aggressive that it bubbles to the surface for everybody to see. And it I mean, it was, it was fascinating. And, and like, it, it is also part of why like the Nathaniel Hackett decision to not go for it was so crazy because think about how much this game meant to Russell Wilson. Like he, he was thinking about this game all off season and you're not going to give him that chance to go get that first down. Come on. All right, power. Let's get our next one here. We've got a lot of really top football players. And we've got an outstanding group that's coaching them up, in my view. And uh, in no way, when you uh, play the amount of football that we play, that you can uh, uh, basically throw cold water. Uh, you can think negatively, and everybody does, and that's normal. Uh, but, boy, we've got a lot of positive things we can do. Uh, I have seen it just look hopeless and walk out there and David Slay, the giant, I've seen it done. That is Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones. The reason that I wanted to do this one, just we don't have to spend a time a ton of time on this. The Cowboys trying in any way to frame themselves as David in a David and Goliath <laughs> battle is, is incredible. That's the Cowboys rich. are a $7 billion football franchise. Have you ever been to the Star? It's the most ridiculous building I've ever seen in my entire life combined with the stadium. Jerry, you didn't have to not spend any money on players this offseason or have Cooper Rush as your backup quarterback. Like You have built yourself into this David even though – you are the most valuable franchise in professional sports in America. Like, maybe that was their yeah, no. Maybe that was their their galaxy brain plan of not spending any money in the offseason was a rebranding to be David. Yeah, I just I love that. I love that Jerry Jones of all people can, can kind of frame himself as the little guy in this moment. It's That's it's amazing rich. the knots that some of these guys can twist themselves into. All well, right, last one. Sort of, I think lead into the next one too. <laughs> last one here, Beller. You guys wrote our obituary. Uh, back in, in May, and you'll continue to write our obituary. Who cares? Because we got 16 games, and if we don't learn from this and get better, and we got to go go play LA. They got a three game, uh, three day jump on us. So we'll, we'll watch the tape. We'll look for corrections, and then we got to get get going on the Rams. That's uh, Falcons head coach Arthur Smith. You wanted to chat about this one? Yeah, I think this is. I mean, this is so rich. Um, you know, listen. I know that that Arthur Smith has had a tough draw in life. He's been through a lot. You know, the odds have been stacked against him at every at every step of the way. But for him to come out after that game and put it on like you guys didn't believe in us. You know who didn't believe in the Falcons? Arthur Smith. Fourth and one. Fourth and one from the 42 to win the game. The, the Saints are out of timeouts. Get one yard in a game when you have rushed for over 200 yards, like 5.8 yards per carry. The Ben Baldwin fourth down bot, I think, has it as a uh, a plus 15 and a half win, win percentage, um, win probability. 
it's like it's not even a lean yes it's a you better do this or you should be fired basically and he punts he doesn't believe in his team to get it and then he comes out and puts it on the media give me a break all right in defense of arthur smith here here's what i will say it was a long one it was like 1.7 yards. So if th- if that makes any sort of difference, then I-, I would like to point that out. Because when I was watching the replay, I expected it to be like fourth and almost inches. And it was like um, it was like a yard and a half, almost two yards. Right, also, they had fumbled the snap before. Yeah, I-, I get why you'd want to kick it away. Because if you don't get that yard, you're essentially losing the game. Because you're giving the ball back at the 42-yard line. All they have to do is kick a field goal. I absolutely would have gone for it, to be clear, if I was in that situation. But I understand the rationale. I also think this is very different for me than Jerry Jones trying to make himself into the little guy. The f- everyone did bury the Falcons. Everyone was tossing dirt on the Falcons the entire offseason. If you're going to send the message that we believe in ourselves more than you guys, it's your, like we are the team that nobody believed in, then go get two yards. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I will say, if I'm in Arthur Smith's position, I-, I think that trying to shape it into like everyone, no one believes in us, all of this stuff when you're a team with as little talent as the Falcons, I can understand that messaging if I'm Arthur Smith, even if I think it's a little bit contrived. Well, yeah, I mean, it's definitely contrived, but I don't know. I just like, I thought that that was incredibly rich. The guy who did the team, the person who mattered, who didn't believe in them was you. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right. After week one, I think there's a lot of stuff to sort through about what is real and what's not. We're going to do that on a couple different levels today. I want to go through a few of the good things that happened in week one, a few of the stars, whether it's teams, players that really shined and whether or not we're buying this. And let's start with the Buffalo Bills and their performance that they had against the Rams on Thursday night. Are you buying that the Bills right now are the best team in the league Pretty clearly. So I think I think my answer is yes. Uh, I think I do buy that they are the best team in the league. I think they're the only team who you can make a really strong case has maybe the best offense in the league and maybe the best defense in the league, right? Um, it was such a dominant performance. I think it's hard to not buy that. The one thing that I don't like push come to shove, you know, like water gun to my toe, you're telling me right, right now that they're going to play in the AFC Championship game tomorrow against the Chiefs. I think I'm still betting on Patrick Mahomes. That's just like that's just how I feel. We haven't really had a chance to talk about this game at all. Again, just the way the schedule fell, it, it was fell through the cracks a little bit. I do think they're the best team in the league, and I think it's for a few different reasons. Watching their secondary against the Rams and just what that team looks like in zone coverage 
really independent of who's out there. The fact that Trey White is out, you got a couple rookie corners, and just how well they play together, the level of communication, they're all playing on a string. It's consistently impressive. And I think their defensive coaching, especially on the back end, has been one of the kind of secret sauce elements of why that team has been really, really good over the last couple of years. And that hasn't changed. I mean, this idea that their defensive staff continuity has been intact since Sean McDermott got there, I really think is important. And you see that. You see that in the way that they play. And what happened up front? I love the fact that this is a team that finished number one in defensive BVOA last season. They drafted two pass rushers in the first two rounds. And even before that, AJ Epinesa is a second round pick. There's so many reasons why they could have looked at that group that they had up front for last season and said, oh, again, Ed Oliver's a top 10 pick. They've shoved so many resources into that position group. There's so many reasons they could have sat there, looked at the group that they had and be like, you know what? We could talk ourselves into this. A little bit more development, take a couple steps forward. We're already the best defense in the league. We don't necessarily need to revamp this. And I think that they've done such a good job of getting out in front of stagnation and regression, just so many things that can come for your defense over time since Brandon Bean has gotten there. And the fact that not only Von Miller and the huge contract that he got, Jordan Phillips was incredible in that game. The entire defensive line is revamped and they have all of those highly drafted guys that they've been trotting out over the last couple of years. And the fact that that group could be absolutely dominant without blitzing in part because of how intentional they were about retooling that position this offseason, it really points to me why the Bills are the example for team building in the NFL right now. Well, and it's it's one of those like uh, very cliche football things that you hear. Like, uh, you know, if, if you can only get pressure on Tom Brady up the middle, then that's really the way to get to him. But like, yeah, if you can get home with four, that's like the golden ticket. Everybody knows that. But for them to actually be able to like rely on being able to do that, and they were so dominant in that game, it's like it's it's the skeleton key, right? Because then you can do whatever you want on the back end. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when you have the resources on the back end, you saw that. You, you saw what that looks like in practice on Thursday. And then going to the offensive side of the ball, I'm terrified by what Josh Allen looks like right now. And you saw it over the second half of last season. And that second Patriots game, the one that was not in a, in a windstorm, how reliant he was on checkdowns, short passes, being able to take what was there, and just how comfortable he was with that kind of play style. I really do think it was kind of a light bulb moment for this team. And you saw that again on Thursday. If we're going to be playing against these teams that put a roof over us the entire game, don't let us push the ball down the field, and we have to operate in these more constrained areas, what does that look like? And he's just fine playing that way now. The ball placement, the precision, just him reining in his ambition in some of those situations, and then the single moment where he's allowed to take a couple shots, he's able to. This version of him, where everything in structure is the way that it's supposed to look, every single opportunity he has to push the ball down the field, he takes it, and you still have those out-of-structure, improvisational, I-need-to-make-my-offensive-coordinator-right-when-he's-not sort of plays. That blend of stuff, I love Justin Herbert, right? Like I, I am one of the world's biggest Justin Herbert proponents, but this version of Josh Allen, I think is pretty clearly the second most dangerous quarterback in the league. Now, are you like me that 
when you're seeing him run, when you're seeing him lower his shoulder, you're wincing a little bit? No, I don't. And I don't maybe it's just because he's so big and yeah. the way that he's playing is just slightly different stylistically from some of these other quarterbacks. This is a weird thing for me. I think that there are certain guys who even if they're playing a little bit more physical, the way that they fall and the way that their body moves and all of that stuff it doesn't worry me quite as much. Justin Fields is so far on the other end of this. Mm. How awkwardly he slides all the time. How many shots he takes. He often puts himself in pretty precarious spots. Even with some of the punishment that Josh Allen takes from a collision standpoint. I just don't feel that way when I watch him. I don't feel that way when I watch Lamar. Because he's so good at avoiding a lot of that contact. There are just certain quarterbacks that it's in the back of my mind. It's not always he's getting hurt. He's getting hurt. Like Fields is like that. I think Burrow is like that a little bit. Where he just takes so many huge shots. But I just don't feel that way about Josh Allen. Maybe that's my own personal thing, but I don't have that feeling when I watch him play. I sort of think that way about about Jalen Hurts too, and I know we'll talk about him. But my my thing with with Josh Allen on that front is just like end of the season. I'm fine with it. It's just like I'm thinking to myself, it's week one. Like, You're right. Do we need to lean into it. Week one, like it's a long road we got to get through. That's how I felt about uh, Burrow. Uh, on Sunday, it's like you do not need to be taking seven sacks in Week One right. against the Steelers. Like, just every play does not need to be a make or break of life or death. The season is on the line, sort of approach. And too often, I think he plays like that, and I'm a little bit worried about his long term viability because of it. All right, you mentioned Jalen Hurts. Are you buying this that Jalen Hurts has finally figured it out that, that he is a different quarterback than he was at the end of last season after his performance on Sunday in Detroit? Uh, I mean, I would say no. I, I don't think he's all of a sudden a different quarterback. I think you saw signs that he has improved in some areas. And I think a lot of those things are like A.J. Brown brings them to the team or like hand delivers them to him. We talked about it over the summer, but, you know, completing passes over the middle of the field. That's what A.J. Brown brings. That's what Jalen Hurts delivered in this game. There was their opening touchdown drive. He completes four passes over the middle of the field, three of them to A.J. Brown uh, for like 50 yards total. That's great. Um, he was he only threw one ball deep in this game. He had the, the lowest A dot in the league. It was like four yards. It was like four and a half, which is like it's funny because last year his lowest was week one also. Uh, and then in week two, it was the deepest in the league. So they completely changed the offense. So we'll see what they do this year. Um, but that was a beautiful throw to A.J. Brown. It was a dime. Uh, he was towards the bottom of the league in completion percentage on those those deep throws last year. So that was good to see. And there were there were some times when when he was moving to his second and third progression. So I think he definitely played a very good game. You know, the Eagles were second in the league in, in EPA per drive, that offensive performance. But also, like the Lions sort of played into his hands to some degree in that they blitzed a lot and played heavy man defense. So you're inviting him to be as efficient a scrambler as he was. So, I mean, I, I think there's still a long way to go. But the the conversation in some parts of, of Eagles fandom where it's like, well, if he plays like this, this is not going to work in, in the playoffs. Like he, he has to be a different quarterback. First of all, you don't want to take away what he does well. And second of all, like the Eagles schedule lines up really well. It's a very easy schedule. The NFC does not look that great. If the question is like, can he play like this on a neutral field and beat, you know, 10 teams with better quarterbacks? Probably not. But if he plays like this and they keep winning, like the one seed is not out of the realm of possibility. And then no. can he play like this at home and win two games? Like, yeah, definitely. So 
I don't know. I, but but <sighs> is he definitely a different quarterback? I'm not so sure. I'm willing to say that yet. Yeah, I'm not willing to say that yet either. I, I do think that the circumstances and the overall formula, the fact that they were willing to throw the ball that much, I think is an encouraging step in the right direction, right? The idea that they can beat this version of the offense where it's more pass happy, where you're getting A.J. Brown the ball, all of those things. Jalen Hurts doesn't even necessarily have to be a different version of who he was last year for this version of the offense to work. I just think the fact that they have enough faith in him to throw the ball. How many times did they throw it? 45 times in this game? Something like that. Yeah, dropbacks I mean, at least. Yeah, I mean the the idea that there were forty five or so dropbacks in this game, I think, is a huge step in the right direction because now you have the pass catchers. Where as long as you're willing to throw the ball, you don't have to ask a ton of him. So many tunnel screens, so many slants, all of that kind of stuff. So I feel more optimistic about the Eagles passing game, even if I don't feel more optimistic about Jalen Hurts. That should be the case considering they have AJ Brown. But I liked the recipe and what that ultimately looked like. I've never had a ton of concerns about Jalen Hurts in terms of accuracy. Like That, to me, is not the biggest thing. When everything's moving in the same direction, he's letting it rip. I don't think he's an overly inaccurate quarterback. It's about processing to me. It's about getting from one to the next, and it's about the timing that he plays with all of those elements. That we still need to see. If teams are going to take away this version of their passing game and really make him make decisions, we still haven't seen that yet. So this is definitely checking the box week one. It's what you want to see from A.J. Brown. It's what you want to see game plan wise. But I think if teams make them play left handed when they're throwing the ball, I still want to see what that looks like. Yeah, and I think Devontae Smith is a part of that. He had no catches in this game, and that's something that's like very much on the Eagles radar. Like. Did you guys uh, ask I, about that play where he hit, where Jalen Hurts right. hit him in the back with the ball? Yeah, exactly. Uh, we didn't ask about that specific play, but and he had one catch that was called back. But yeah, I mean, they did not look really on the same page like they did at, at times last year. And this is the kind of thing where, like, in the locker room after the game, coaches and players, like, if they're asked about AJ Brown who had ten catches for 150 yards, 55 yards, you want to like gas this guy up? They're like, well, you know, like we like all of our receivers. It's not just AJ. <laughs> we like all the weapons that we have. Like they are very pre-aware of the fact that they're going to have to balance these targets. So uh, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to follow that. But I also think, um, in terms of like going through his progressions, I talked to Jason Kelsey about this in the locker room after the game, and he was saying like, you know, if it's one read, two read, three read, or if it's one read, two read, go. Like if it's one read, two read, go, that means we don't, we don't have to block as long. Like that's fine. Uh, we've talked about this, you and I, I think during yeah. training camp, it's not about him not running. It's about him running quickly. And there was one play, I think on the second drive where there was a little sit route over the ball. He looked at it. It wasn't there. And he took off and he scrambled to his left and he could probably gain like 10 or 15 yards. That's totally fine as an outcome. But there are going to be moments where he needs to get from one to two and actually throw the ball. I mean, those are going to come up over the course of the season when they do. What does it actually look like? I think is a really big question. I Ted wrote something today I thought was fascinating about how receivers, really good receivers, have now become the guys that can carry the load for their offense. If you look at the amount of targets that some of the guys around the league got in week one, Cooper Cup, A.J. Brown, Devontae Adams, Justin Jefferson, I love that. I love the fact that some of these teams that are going out of their way to accrue a receiver of this caliber or to when you, when you stumble into one like the Vikings did with Jefferson or in a way like the Rams did with Cup, understanding what you have and understanding that it's totally fine to build the entire passing game plan out of how you get this guy the ball. And I think more and more offensive coaches understanding that and leaning into that 
is only a good thing for their offenses and only a good thing for us because it's fun as shit to watch. I think that's exactly right. I was talking about this the other day. Like there are guys who are who are good enough that like they completely change the ceiling of the offense. And it's like we might get to the Packers, but like the hubris to think that it's you're going to be able to just replace Devontae Adams with a second round pick, a fourth round pick, and a you know a, a journeyman career underachiever like like Sammy Watkins. Like yeah, you might have a good offense, but you're not going to just replace that guy. He he totally changes everything. Next one here. Carson Wentz is a functional NFL quarterback. Are you buying this? Define functional. Carson Wentz can be the quarterback of an above-average passing offense over the course of an entire season. I think I would probably still say no, but I mean that. I think that performance against the Jags was eighth in the league in terms of EPA per drive. Like he was okay. You know those those interceptions were very Wentzian, but. I think you would give credit to, to the offensive design. They've certainly got enough weapons around him. Uh, the offensive line is not very good. But I, I do think that, like, push come to shove, he's, you know, the bad Carson Wentz is going to show up plenty. But, like, top half of the league, top 10 passing offense, I think still probably not. But I think, I think what you saw in week one was, was probably about as good as you could expect. I don't think I thought enough about how much better the pass catching options were going to be for Washington, even compared to what they were last year. And you know, we joked when I was in Washington talking to Ben Standig during training camp, I think like the day after I saw you, well, now Curtis Samuel's healthy. Like it would think about where we were a year ago and how much of a difference that makes. And I kind of said it jokingly that, 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 Oh my God, Curtis Samuel was on the field. What's that going to mean for them? Curtis Samuel was a really important piece of their offense in week one. They were using him in all of these different ways, whether it was as eye candy or in some of the, the quads looks that they had I mean, having him with Jahan Dotson and Terry McLaurin and then Antonio Gibson as a pass catcher, what JD McKissick is. This team has a lot of guys who can do damage as receivers and with the ball in their hands. And I think Scott Turner is very good at this. Like if you look at what they were doing offensively, especially those first couple drives and just some of those designs, I mean, they had the sail route to Antonio Gibson coming from out of the backfield in like a split gun look down near the red zone. That shit is really fun. And when you have somebody who understands how to deploy the amount of juice they have at those pass catching spots, all Carson Wentz has to do is not screw this up. You could probably have said the same thing about last year's team, but right. I I do feel better after that game than I felt coming into the season because I think this is exactly the formula they were looking for, exactly the reason that they were willing to say, all we need is somebody that can make some of these throws that Taylor Heineke couldn't. That's all we need for the offense to take a step forward, and at least one week into the season, it seems like that's correct. I think that's the that's like the the predicament with Carson Wentz is that you sort of think that he needs to be a caretaker, but that's not what he is. Like he's going to have negative plays a lot of the time, but if he also has the upside of making those throws that you're talking about that Taylor Heineke couldn't make, it's a different it's a different um, formula, right? It's not just let's be safe. It's let's take the high variance on both sides. And there are going to be times when that looks really good. And there are going to be times when it looks really, really bad. I think that's exactly right. I don't think it's Carson Wentz is not a middle of the road option where it's right. like, all right, we're, he's going to take what's there. But that throw to Gibson, I mean, he rips that ball outside the numbers. And that's just not the type of throw you're going to see from what they had at quarterback over the last couple of seasons. You're going to have some terrifying, stupefying moments over the course of the year. But 
even if the average of those two things is a little bit higher than it was last year, even if it's the 16th best offense in the league, I think they'll take that compared to what they've been getting. Yeah, that makes sense. Also, like, you know, you get one season of Taylor Heineke. That's that's pretty much all you need to see. That, that's very true. All right, next one here. Saquon Barkley is back. Are you buying this? Uh, I think I sort of am. I, I am too. really juicy in yeah, that game. Yeah, I am too. And you know, what, you know what, like, really sold me was the two-point conversion because – the Titans read that like they had two guys right there. They saw what was coming and he just bounced right off of them and, and got, I mean, and also like the juice he had on that really long run. That was impressive, but I am sort of buying it. I thought he looked really good, better than he has at any point since he was a rookie. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I mean, I went back and I watched and you know, the success rate was like, I think he had a 50% success rate on, on his carries in that game. There were some negative plays, but it's not like it was, you know, two yards, two yards, 70 yards. He was, looked explosive the vision looked really good some nice moments from an offensive line that's kind of been pieced together josh azudu who's a third round pick of theirs uh shane lemieux was going to be their starting left guard this year he's out for a, a good chunk of the season so he had to start a left guard in this game and i thought he had some decent moments he wasn't great all the way throughout i think this offensive line isn't going to be great from day one they got a rookie starting at right tackle now they have a rookie starting at left guard got a couple journeymen on the interior but i do think they might be good enough for saquon barkley to be able to show signs of life and one game into the season i am excited to watch saquon barkley week in and week out and that is not something that i have felt over the last couple years yeah i would say i am not buying the giants uh like they did not really deserve to win that game they had no business winning it and and credit to brian dable for for going for it uh, unlike arthur smith but i am buying i am buying saquon barkley and i think they'll be good enough that they'll be able well, we will be able to see him show that juice as long as he can stay healthy last one here kevin o'connell is the next big thing are you buying this well i am certainly buying that we're going to get the media narrative that he is uh, i mean he's a sean mcveigh disciple so there's like he has no choice that's that's like it's like his given birthright as a, a, a McVeigh disciple head coach. So I mean, I thought that the things that he some of the things he did in that game were very impressive. I want to see a few more games of it before I before I crown him. But uh, I, I certainly think he's going to get talked about that way. It's early. It's very, very early, but the early returns are, are pretty damn good. And what they looked like on offense is exactly what I hoped they would look like on offense. I picked him as my coach of the year before the season. I thought that Justin Jefferson would be the offensive player of the year. The odds for both of those, Bell, are like halved nice. after after one week. So felt pretty good about both of those choices. One week into the year, a long way to go. But I do think that he – we talked about this on the Sunday show a little bit. We're so many of those McVeigh acolytes throughout the league. And I think that it's the same way with any coaching tree. Did you learn the good lessons or the bad lessons from the place that you came from? And I think that watching the way they deploy Jefferson, watching just the structure of that offense, even some of the little tweaks personnel-wise or in the run game that they were willing to do, it wasn't just copy-paste from the things that the Rams have done over the last couple of years. I think it was the right ethos behind some of that decision-making and the way that you build an offense while also tailoring it correctly to your personnel. And that's really all you can ask for. And it's a long, long way to go. And I'm really excited to see what it looks like against Philly on Monday night. The fact that that is a week two game and already looks a lot better than it did before the season started. I think that the early returns are good enough that I'm it's trending in the right direction. I guess that's what I would say. Well, and if you see the Eagles defense that showed up in week one, that you know, let the Lions have the third best offensive performance of the week, then I think uh, the Kevin O'Connell stock is your, your odds on, on uh, the coach of the year 
bet are going to get even shorter. All right. On the other end of this, there's a lot of panic that comes with week one. Obviously, we haven't seen any of these teams. And if you're a team that's harboring Super Bowl aspirations and you have a pretty devastating week one loss. I think it's easy to overreact. So I want to figure out how much we should be panicking with some of these teams that lost in week one. On a scale of one to ten, we're going to tap into the panic meter here. Packers. Ten is like a Jody Foster panic yeah, room. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yes, okay. uh, the doors are slamming. Packers, one to ten. How much panic are we talking about with Green Bay? Like three? Two or three? Uh, I, I mean, that's I think- fair. I think realistically, any expectation was that this was going to take a little bit of time, right? When you have Christian Watson and Romeo Dubs and and these guys trying to replace Devontae Adams, like to me, it matters more that Christian Watson got open uh, than it does that he dropped the ball. Like that's a better sign in the long run. So, uh, you know, even in terms of their offensive performance, they only scored seven points, but they moved the ball really well. I think if you look at uh, in terms of like the first downs that they got, Per possession, I think they were like eighth or ninth in the league. I think their offense is going to be fine as long as Aaron Rodgers stays healthy. I think the defense is still going to be good. Obviously, the division is not that great. So I, I expect that Like if you, were, if you were thinking they were going to be a one seed, then maybe your panic meter is higher. But in terms of is this going to be a team that's in the playoffs and you know a part of the conversation in January, I think, I think it's pretty low. Yeah, I feel the same way. I think it's because we know the reinforcements are coming. It's not like they were at full strength in week one. Both of the tackles didn't play. It sounds like they're going to be back at some point. They were practicing today. Matt Schneidman reported that right before we started recording this. So hopefully they're back sooner rather than later. You know, If they're back by week four, week five, and this is the team that they're going to be for most of the season, that makes me feel a little bit better. Also, Alan Lazard didn't play in that game. And Alan Lazard isn't Devontae Adams. But when you have no receivers that you've ever played with before, sure. having a guy whose name you knew like three weeks ago is probably a good thing and that's they didn't even have that on sunday how dare you discount 85 year old randall cobb <laughs> yeah that's all they had randall <laughs> cobb is the guy that aaron Rodgers knew the best in that yeah. game so i think that is another thing to take into consideration i also think their defense is going to be much better in games where they're not playing against justin jefferson in a very well-designed passing offense even if you we like the individual players i thought that Minnesota did such a great job of making the guys on the back end communicate. The individual players on the Packers defense are very, very good. But I do think that when you're playing against an offense that's making you communicate, that's constantly changing the picture on you, that can take a little bit for you to settle in. Jair Alexander didn't play last season. This group as an entire secondary is playing, what, their second or third game together. I have a lot of faith in what this unit will look like over the course of the year. But I think in week one, they ran into a really big challenge that they may not face again over the rest of the season when it comes to that type of receiver in an offense that understands how to deploy it receiver like that and that had like an entire summer to plan for that exact game right yes. against that defense so yeah i think i think that's a fair point all right rams one out of ten how much panic are we feeling about the rams you know i think i would inch it up to like a four uh because i think the stafford elbow is definitely on my radar like he didn't look great in that game and i, I think you expect maybe a defending champion to start slow a little bit uh, the, you know, I'm not going to discount a team with Aaron Donald and, and Jalen Ramsey, but I would say, like, if you were expecting this to be some juggernaut uh, championship defense, 
I would I would think you would be pretty much a little bit lower on that than than you were heading into week one. But I, it's just the Stafford elbow that, that has me worried. What about you? I'm kind of worried. Yeah? I really am kind of worried. It's for this reason. The Stafford elbow, I'm concerned about that. I don't think he looked that different in that game than he looked for a lot of last season. You know, accuracy, all of those things. It's something to keep in the back of your mind. But that's There not was that the th- one clip, did you see, where he's like looking at the sidelines like, I can't hold the ball? I, I think the elbow thing, it, that's not the thing I'm most worried about. The thing I'm most worried about is the state of the offensive line and the way that they were able to play last year because yeah. of the pass protection. If you look at a lot of the numbers, we talked about this on our NFC West preview that I, I did with Deontay. My biggest question about them heading into the year is whether they'd be able to protect the same way they did a year ago. I think that he was seventh in the NFL last season in the number of dropbacks he had that lasted more than two and a half seconds. And he was 19th in pressure rate on those plays. Their ability to hold up on some longer developing down the field concepts, even on an empty, not blocked in the way that you traditionally block those, was a huge reason they were able to be successful last year throwing the ball. And you take Andrew Whitworth out of that equation, and now your starting center is out for two to four weeks. I can't even pronounce the names of the guys that they're going to have on the offensive line now that Brian, is at, Brian Allen is out. Coleman Shelton is going to be their starting center now. Tremaine Ankrum Jr. now steps in as the starting right guard. His dad. These are issues. <laughs> Joe Noboom also hurt. He's, I don't think he's going to miss any time, but he has a strained knee. That, to me, is how things start to unravel a little bit. Even if you have faith in the scope position talent, even if you have faith in Sean McVay to kind of figure this out. Also, I don't think Kevin O'Connell was like the secret sauce behind why the Rams were good. Mm. But eventually, brain drain is a real thing for NFL teams. You can love Sean McVay and think that he's one of the best offensive coaches in football. And I do think that that's true. But over time, when you start to lose all of these guys that have been sounding boards for you, that have been problem solvers for you on that side of the ball, the degree of difficulty gets higher. And that's what's happened with the Rams. So they've got some stuff to sort out, and it's not going to be as easy to sort out as it might have been over the last couple of years. And I think, to your point, you have faith that they will figure it out to some degree because of the track record, but it is, it's going to be hard. And I also think on the offensive line, that's sort of the fun of like this specific week of the calendar year when the only information we have is one team against another team, like that's the only context we have. And so if we love what the Bills defense did, you can also probably think that the Rams offensive line is going to hold up better against a defense that doesn't have as good of a pass rush. But if the Rams offensive line was the problem, then maybe the Bills pass rush isn't going to be so good against, against other teams. That's sort of like what I like about this time of year. The Bills are perfectly built to give the Rams a hard time on that side of the ball. They do not need to blitz to get pressure. You look at the numbers from last season. The Rams were by far, far and away, the most efficient team in the league when blitzed. Matthew Stafford's EPA per dropback against five or more pass rushers was in a different zip code than everyone else's in the NFL last year. And teams started blitzing them less over really the final two-thirds of the season. Stafford was below average against four pass rushers by EPA per drop back over the final two thirds of the year last year. Teams are not going to give them the easy ones. So what can they look like? And they played against a team that looks better using that combination of factors, rushing for playing a lot of zone than any other defense in the league is going to look this year. So I don't think it's going to be as bad as it was for the Rams in that game. But I also think that it showed some fundamental issues with where this team is at right now. 
And also, I, I know this is a sore subject for you, but like, where was Allen Robinson? All I heard all summer was how great he was going to be. What's the deal? I went back and I watched pretty much every snap that he took. <laughs> I, I do think that I don't think Allen Robinson it's like the is last dust. thing you do before you go to bed. So obviously, the all twenty two comes out on like Friday. On Saturday morning, I was going for a walk with my fiance and my dog, and we were trying to leave the house. And someone had tweeted a video of every single Allen Robinson route <laughs> from that game. And I'm sitting there on my phone just watching it. She's like, what are you doing? We have to go. And I was like, just give me one minute. And I'm just watching every single Allen Robinson route from that game. So you're pretty close. It wasn't what I was watching right before I went to bed, but it was what I was watching when I was trying to spend time with my family over the course of the weekend. Yeah, it was like, it's the literal meme of like, oh, I wonder what he's thinking about. And he's thinking, oh, <laughs> Allen Robinson doesn't look as cooked as I was worried about. I he I do not think that Allen Robinson is dusted. I do think that it was a product of the game plan and everything else. I mean, it's I don't think Allen Robinson is dust. I don't think he's totally cooked. I do think that there are underlying factors about the Rams that I'm concerned about. That's what I will say. Fair enough. All right, next one here. Arizona Cardinals. Scale of one to ten. How much panic are we talking here? Well, I think if like uh if I'm a Cardinals fan and I had high expectations for the year, I'm at like a nine. Um, but if you're someone like me who thought this was going to be a bad team that could really combust, then it's this is sort of what you expected to see. Uh, I don't, I do not have high expectations for the Cardinals this year, and and it's not a, it's not like a a bad thing to get dusted by the Chiefs' offense. I think that will happen to a lot of teams, but I just, I just don't see it with with the Cardinals. I was wondering if this was going to be the year where the defense just fell off a cliff where they weren't able to kind of hold it together and Vance Joseph wasn't able to just pin this thing together with gum and toothpicks and bullshit in the same way that he has been over the last couple of years, that might be the case. And they looked absolutely lost. And they, they just have so few plus players on that side of the ball. You think they and, need another first-round linebacker? It's so few plus players on that side of the ball. All of the resources that they've allocated and the way that they've tried to build this thing has left them with so many holes and I just don't know how that gets fixed. I just think that this is the year where it might all start to fall apart. And you combine that with the fact that they don't have that many plus players on offense. Like and the they're offense, old. There's yes. this idea that it's like Kyler Murray's still on the on the up, like on the ascension with this young team. They're one of the oldest offenses in the league. Like I think six of their eleven starters are are almost thirty. It's crazy. There are these teams where, and I always like to look at how many young building blocks do we think that they have? How many young ascending players do we think are on this roster? And when you look at the the Cardinals, there just aren't that many. You can't come up with a list of five guys. And when you're built that way, that's when the bottom can fall out. Yes. It, it is. You are not that far away from disaster. And that's what I was worried about with this team. I was worried that they were going to look like the 2019 Texans if, if this thing went wrong. And Sunday didn't give me reason to think that we're not trending in that direction. Yeah, but Greg Dortch, he's the truth. Oh, Go Deeks. Yeah, I think this is. I think this could really, could really get ugly. All right, San Francisco 49ers. How worried are we? Where's the panic meter? I just it's it's so hard to really like take that game as serious signal and so i would say like uh no answer like talk to me next week um because it's just i mean obviously you watch the game but in in a in a monsoon like that it's i i wouldn't it wouldn't it doesn't change my expectation i would say my panic meter is, is still zero or one 
I'm the exact same way. I mean, the Elijah Mitchell injury sucks, but I, I think that yeah, they'll be able fair. to overcome that. Uh, if you're going to lose one position on offense, I think losing a running back, especially when you've had to do it before, like you've had to come up with solutions for what that looks like in the past. I, I do have faith in their ability to sort through that. I thought the offensive line was okay. You know, the idea that this they have this crumbling interior offensive line that is ultimately going to doom them. I don't see that. I think it's going to take a little while for that group to come along just because they're young and inexperienced, but I don't think it's this disaster area that some other people might, but I'm with you. I think this is a wait until we see one, two more games of what they look like in semi-normal conditions before we pass any judgment. Yeah, I think that's right. But, you know, you do, like, I think the, the Jimmy G whispers are, like, already starting to creep up a little bit. And so even though if you even if you do believe in the long-term plan, and you believe that like they'll get this thing working with Trey Lance by week four or five, like by the time you get there, if they're one and three, like those whispers are gonna are gonna turn into to yells. Last one here, Tennessee Titans. Scale of one to ten, how worried are we? I think you know this is another one where the context is important. I would say my answer here is like a three um, because they had no business losing that game. Um, like they completely outplayed the Giants for, for most of the game. Kyle Phillips muffs a punt. He drops uh, an easy catch late in the first half that took points off the board. Obviously, Randy Bullock misses a game-winning field goal. They, As I said before, like they read that two-point conversion correctly. They just missed the tackle on Saquon Barkley. But it's the kind of thing where this is a team that lived on winning these close games. They were, I think, 10-2, and two, the by far away the best record in the league over the past two seasons in three-point games. Uh, so this is kind of the kind of like crazy reversion that was probably coming. You're disappointed that a team that is theoretically built to play from ahead blew a 13-point lead and then a, a, a seven-point fourth-quarter lead. But they're still in a division that is there for the taking. They're still going to play these tight games. I thought the offense didn't look that bad. Uh, I thought Kyle Phillips, aside from those mistakes, looked pretty good. And I, I thought Traylon Burks had a little bit of juice, more so than we were hearing over the summer. So I think... And Jeffrey Simmons was, I mean, a game wrecker. He, I think he has the potential to like be a superstar for them. So I would say my, my panic meter is three, but I also think like the odds are that this team is going to lose some of these games more than they did in, in years past. Yeah, I think it depends on the panic meter is dependent on what your expectations for right, this exactly. team are. Uh, my expectations for this team weren't very good. Uh, one of my favorite bets that we threw out in our preseason shows was you know, them winning like under seven and a half games and the odds sure. you could get on something like that. And I, that's kind of how I feel. They're 10 point underdogs against the Bills this weekend. 10 points. Good teams aren't 10 point underdogs against anyone. And I feel like that's where this team is. They are not one of the good teams. And that's okay. Right. This was always going to be a step back for this team when you trade A.J. Brown and you're in this moment of transition and you draft a quarterback in the third round because you understand that whatever your current plan is at that position is probably not something that can sustain you for the next couple years. To me, this was always going to be a transitional year for Tennessee. The fact that they lost to the Giants in week one doesn't really change the fact that I'm not bullish on where this team is going to be this season. Yeah, I think that's right. You can't you can't just trade your best player and expect to be as good. But I also still think, like, the AFC South, I mean, nobody nobody won a game in the division. So it's not it's not impossible that they could still sneak into the playoffs. I think we're going to be talking about that for a long time. Remember in 2022 when the AFC South didn't win a game in week one and two of the teams played against each <laughs> yeah, exactly. other?
Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Last thing I want to do before we get out of here, I want to point people to your power rankings that you were doing every week at yes. The Athletic. Every yeah, well, week. It's going to be long Sunday, Monday nights. <laughs> it's okay. We're almost at the end of the season. Yeah. it's all, yeah. It's, it's, we're like in week 18. This is fine. We'll yeah. be totally fine. That's how I was feeling yesterday. I was like, yeah. man, it's a good thing we're in like week 12. I'm feeling a little bit right. tired right now. Exactly. Couple notable teams that that I wanted to talk about from those power rankings. You have the Vikings and the Eagles at five and six. Those teams play each other this week. Well, just to give context, if you haven't read it, I did do this week's power rankings because I think this week is a fun week where all of the one and O teams are the first fifteen. Then you've got the two teams who tied, and then all the O and one teams are after that, which I think is kind of like a fun context because who's the best of the teams who lost who's the worst of the teams who won but yeah so i have the vikings at five and six but if i was actually ranking the best teams in the league they would not be quite so high we're going to talk about that game a lot a little bit later this afternoon with deontay and nate two things i wanted to ask you from these power rankings that i feel like are not swayed at all by the way that you did this at the bottom i'm not asking you to rank who the worst team in the league is but near the bottom of those power rankings, after one week, who do you think the saddest team in the league is? Hmm. I think I think I would have said the Cowboys if the, there wasn't a little bit of optimism about Dak coming back sooner. Because it is funny that like week two, Dan Brugger is getting harassed with Cowboys draft questions. I think it's the Jets. And I know, and I know that Robert Sala is like, you know, he says he's taking receipts on everybody who's doubting them. I mean, what did what, Joe Flacco threw? What fifty-eight passes? <laughs> That's your it, week one plan. I mean, I know Zach Wilson's hurt, but come on. It's the Jets because we're a week into the season and they're already calling for Mike White to supplant Joe Flacco. They're like, chanting his name. That's why it's the Jets. And I thought the Jets' defense was much better uh, last week than they had been overall of last season. It's not hard. They were the worst defense in the league last year. I think the Jets will probably be fine and be a functional NFL team over the course of the year. But the state of the Jets' quarterback conversation a week after we started the season, I think, puts them in the conversation for this. I think it's the Cowboys. This is a team that I think they believe they were a playoff team. I think their fan base believe that they were a playoff team. And now they're one of the worst teams in the league without Dak Prescott. And there's a chance they emerge from this like 0-5 and the Eagles are 4-1, 5-0 and the season is already over. Like that is absolutely on the table for what the next four to six weeks will look like for the Dallas Cowboys. I think I'm like semantically parsing it because that's more like like heartbreak, like something – very dramatic happened whereas like 
the Jets and the Panthers are like a droopy faced dog. Like they didn't really think that there was anything to look forward to this year. And then it was even worse than they thought. Like that's, I think that, I think the Jets are, are why I would go with the saddest because it's like, Oh, what are you talking yourself into? Oh, like maybe, maybe Zach Wilson's going to show enough, like in the middle of the season, they're not even going to get that. That's going to be, it's the Jets. That's probably always the answer. Last one I have for you here. Among those top 15 teams, the ones that are in the top 15 because they won, who has the worst chance to wind up in the top 15 when the season is over? It's a two-horse race, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to look you in the face and say the Bears. Um, so, Do you think, it, you think the Giants or the Bears have a worse chance of ending up in the top half of the league before the end of the year? I think the Bears. I think the Bears. I'm sorry. You don't have to apologize. It's I mean, a totally I, reasonable answer. The problem is, like, you know, I can I can sort of talk myself into maybe something crazy happens in the NFC East. Saquon has some, like, you know, alien-type season where he carries them to, you know, a, a top-10 offense somehow. I mean, Daniel Jones in that game was bad, I thought, uh, and so I don't have a lot of faith in them. But... I mean, I think the Bears also have to play the Packers and Vikings twice, whereas the Giants only have to play a, probably a good team once or, or twice rather. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't feel great about either of them. You sell me on the Bears. I can't sell you on the Bears. <laughs> I, I the same way we talked about the fact that you can't make a judgment on the Niners after one week. I went yeah. back and I watched the Bears' offense yesterday. It's not good, man. I mean, it, like obviously the weather was terrible, the conditions are terrible, but there's no way to watch what happened during that game outside of two or three plays that Justin Fields pulled out of his ass and been like, yeah, the Bears have definitely made progress offensively. There's still a lot of questions to be answered. So I don't blame you at all for saying the Bears should be there because the Bears are not going to be good, right? It's fun to win a game. It's fun to have that be the first step of the Matt Eberflus era, but I do think it's still going to be a pretty long year in Chicago. So I think that's more than fair. Bo Wolf, what else are you writing this week? What else can people go read from you? Had an interview story with Brandon Graham up today, uh, running through all the quarterbacks he's sacked in his career. Um, he has sacked Kirk Cousins more than any other quarterback, and they play on Monday night, so that's good. So Eagles fans will enjoy that, and uh, you know we'll, we'll see what else comes from there. I'm trying to get some sleep like at some point here, but I don't know. It's, I feel bad asking you to do this, knowing, knowing that you had to do those power rankings after doing all the other work that you're doing. When does the next episode of Birds with Friends come out? Uh, we'll be up on Friday. We had one yesterday talking with Arif uh, Hassan, who covers the Vikings, to talk about the Vikings. And then on Friday, we have our, our game preview and uh, swooper sorecasting for Eagles fans, which is always a lot of fun. If you guys do not listen to Birds with Friends, if you're an Eagles fan that doesn't listen to Birds with Friends, I don't know what you're doing. Please go correct that. But it is a fantastic podcast, and uh, I really appreciate the time, but I know you got a lot going on. Thanks for having me. All right. A little bit later this afternoon, 3.30 p.m. Eastern on Thursday. Me, Nate, and Deontay live on YouTube doing our week two preview. So please come check that out if you want to watch us. It will be available as a podcast afterward. It always is. Anybody that's curious about that. Also, please rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. I would sincerely appreciate that. Please go check out the first episode of Prospects to Pros with Andy Staples and Dane Brugler. That came out on Wednesday afternoon on the feed and will be coming your way every single week. This season, they talked about some of the notable rookies from week one, dug into a big week in college football, some of the prospects that you should be watching. Very excited to have them on the feed all season. So please go give that a listen. 
We'll be back a little bit later today with Nate and Deontay. Appreciate you guys listening. We'll talk to you soon. This was The Athletic Football Show.